Welcome to the Minds of the Early Church podcast. This podcast seeks to understand and develop the way of thinking of the early church, especially its spiritual and intellectual insights, in order to guide us in our time. Developing this way of thinking in ourselves will also give us new ways of navigating a quickly changing world and will allow us to engage the modern world in a fresh, exciting, and authentic way. Christianity and Moral Philosophy, featuring Father Stephen Freeman. Welcome to this episode of the Mind of the Early Church podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, Father Stephen Freeman from the Orthodox Church in America, and he also runs the Glory to God for All Things podcast on Ancient Faith Radio. Today we're going to discuss a very, very important area of discussion that comes up among all Christians which is the relationship between Christianity and morality. Let me just share a story that I once had with a colleague. She's a Christian, and she was discussing with me how she had a friend whose father was not a Christian. And this, lady's, uh, this the lady that her father was not a Christian said, my father was the most righteous man, most moral man you could meet. I never met a person better than him. Why does he need Jesus? And I feel that question comes up a lot. On the flip side, we, always, we often hear things like, if people did not have the Bible, they would not know morality, which I also find to be problematic. Now, some of you may be listening, oh no, he just like, this is everything I ever thought about the subject. But the reality is, in the early Christian tradition, and in the Orthodox Christian tradition, which is the inheritor of that great and varied tradition, there is a very peculiar way that the early church approached the whole matter. And today we have, like I said, Father Stephen Freeman with us, who will introduce himself in a bit more detail for those of you who may not be familiar with him. Well, it's, it's good to be here with you uh, today, Daniel. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually a retired priest uh, in the Orthodox Church in America. I served uh, parishes, uh, parish here in uh, East Tennessee and uh, recently uh, retired uh, as the guy in charge. I'm still there uh, attached, but there's another priest who now serves as the pastor. Um, I continue my work writing and speaking, um, and uh, it's good to be here. My own background, uh, I was an Episcopal priest for 18 years uh, and then converted to Orthodoxy uh, some 22 years ago, so all told about 40 years of ordained ministry. Um, I did doctoral work, uh, although I cut out with an MA uh, early, long story that one, but uh, doctoral work at, uh, uh, at Duke, uh, and one of my uh, thesis directors was uh, Stanley Hauerwas at Duke, who's uh, probably one of the, the best professor, teachers of ethics uh, in the U.S. I often think of him as one of the few Protestant theologians uh, worth listening to. Uh, I think Time Magazine dubbed him America's greatest theologian. And if that's not the kiss of death, I don't know what it is. But he, he always laughed about it. But um, it's, you know, the topic you've mentioned and the question is, is certainly of interest to me. Um, uh, it's uh, so, anyway, 
don't know what you want. Do you want me to do anything with that yet or not? Yeah, well, I want to introduce the matter to our audience. Um, so yeah. morality, the way that we think about morality is called ethics or, or ethical philosophy or moral philosophy. And it's very ancient. It goes back to the Greek philosopher Socrates and was developed further by Plato, who was his student, and by Plato's student, Aristotle. So a lot of people think, wait a second, we can't accept that. We have our own morals as Christians. But the reality is ethics is not just another system for people to follow without Christ. And that's, again, part of the problem that we're hoping to unravel in this episode. Ethics is about asking questions about what makes for good and just actions and what doesn't and where we ground those at. So, for example, there's a, a problem in ethical philosophy. It's called the grounding problem. It's where do we base our understanding of how we should behave? For some people, it will be the economic system. Is everything going to be beneficial economically? And that system is based on an idea called utilitarianism. That's a system of ethics where we look at the value of things and how we use them to get other things. But then you go back further, like to Aristotle, he thought that the grounding of morality was in human nature and specifically in the nature of humans to live in cities. So we as humans have a tripartite composition. We have a rational mind and we have what we call a spirited element. It's kind of like our emotions. So the mind's associated with the head, the spirited element with the chest, with the heart, and then we have the appetites or the passions. Those are associated with the belly and lower. The passions are things like our urges. So we have the urge to eat. We have the urge for security. We have the urge for family, to be intimate with someone and to produce a family with that person. Those things are out of our control. And if we don't manage them properly using our rational minds, then they soon take control of us and we become worse than animals. So these are examples of questions ethics asks. What is the grounding on which ethics is based? And what does that mean for us? So today we're going to discuss a few systems. Um, we will discuss how the early church approached the matter, and we'll see how we can engage it. So the first question I ask is, is Christianity an ethical system? Well, it's almost like the question of, does Christianity think that there are ways to behave? And the answer to that is, of course, we think there are ways to behave, but some ways are better than others. Um, it, it's grounding, though, is not in a sort of independent uh, thing. And, you know, if Aristotle grounds it within our, our life in the city. Uh, that is, uh, you know, or modern utilitarianism grounds it in our economic life. Those are uh, independent things. Christianity uh, really flowing from its Jewish roots uh, sees uh, that our behavior and our life is grounded in God and our relationship with God. In the Old Testament, that's described uh, in the law. Um, and of course, it's almost an unfortunate word that we translate Torah uh, as law because we have this long legal tradition that has nothing to do with the Torah. Uh, and if you spend much time uh, among Jews, you discover uh, they say things about the law that we would never dream of saying about the law. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, say in uh, Psalm 19 or, or several others, 
they'll talk about the law and almost sound like it's a person. You know, the law of the Lord is clean. The law of the Lord is all these things. You saw these things that are virtual worship words directed towards the law of the Lord. Uh, and uh, it's wonderful. It lightens the eyes. It does all of this. It's sweeter than honey. Uh, you don't talk about, you know, the uh, city code like that, <laughs> unless you're very strange. Um, but so in Christianity, um, and it's interesting too, uh, when we think about early Christianity, early Christianity didn't come uh, into the world without a culture surrounding it. The culture into which Christianity uh, comes uh, is Hellenism, that is a Greek culture. It's a culture that speaks Greek. I remember once someone, uh, I was in college reading something that was speculating, wondering if Jesus spoke Greek. And I thought, oh man, that's like, you know, only an American would ask a question like that. Because <laughs> uh, in America, we only speak one language oftentimes. I mean, if you're in Europe, certain parts of Europe, you speak four or five languages. And these days in Europe, you speak English. Why? Well, because we conquered it. And we have an occupying army stationed all over the place. Jesus lived in a land that had been conquered uh, for over 200 years by uh, a Greek-speaking majority. The Roman soldiers spoke Greek. Um, so Jesus undoubtedly did. The early church spoke Greek when Paul wrote letters to Rome, I mean, capital of the empire, when he wrote letters to the Roman church, they were in Greek. When uh, St. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, and what uh, would become France, uh, when he wrote his treatises uh, 200 years after Christ, he wrote them in Greek. It was just the language uh, of what was around. There was plenty of Latin to be found, but Greek was the common language. And with that common language comes a common vocabulary. There was an ethical vocabulary uh, that uh, comes from uh, Plato and Aristotle, but especially at the time of, of the New Testament, uh, would have been dominated particularly by the Stoics, who were sort of an inheritor of sorts, sort of blending things, but uh, supremely ethical and a very dominant thing. So many of the words that come to be used in early Christianity and the writings of the early fathers about ethics are borrowed straight out uh, from Greek uh, ethical philosophical language. But oftentimes, when needed, uh, that vocabulary uh, new meanings were given. And so uh, we didn't take the entire system. We took the language. We borrowed certain concepts that we found uh, compatible uh, and we changed things. Um, so um, it's, you know, early Christian thought is, belongs to the world of Hellenism. It just does. Um, although there is an Arabic speaking early culture, uh, Syriac, actually, but it too had ways of borrowing a great deal from the Hellenistic world. Um, the early fathers oftentimes uh, spoke about that early Hellenistic world as something that was itself a preparation for the coming of Christ. I know there's um, a famous uh, monastery in Romania on the outside of its walls has icons painted. There's one row uh, that are the prophets of the Old Testament. There's another row below that that are the philosophers of ancient Greece. And there's a sense in which the prophets prepared for the coming of Christ uh, among the Jews, uh, but that the mind 
of the Gentile world had been prepared for the coming of Christ through the teaching of the Greek philosophers. Um, and, and if I can add to that too, it's, you know, it's St. Clement of Alexandria said something along the lines that this was the covenant to the Greeks, whereas the law was the covenant to the Jews, the philosophy was the covenant to the Greeks. And it actually makes sense when we look at the history of philosophy and what had happened. You know, we have these group of thinkers called the sophists. They rise up after philosophers have been bickering for a hundred years with each other. And there's, it's a, there's a standstill for the development of knowledge about the world. So they come in and say, oh, there's no objectivity. All you have to learn how to do is get your way. And specifically by persuading people to agree with you. And if that sounds familiar, it's exactly the culture we're living in. But had that developed on and this extreme relativity taking ground in the ancient world, Christianity would not have been able to be received among the people who lived in that world. Because if they did not have the capability to think and weigh claims and understand how evidence supports a conclusion, which is what the later philosophers, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, who went against the sophists and showed that there was such a thing as truth and that it could be discovered, and it was not that difficult to do, then when we hear things like objective, like real, this happened, here's the evidence, it would make no difference to us because reality would just be one relative thing among many other relative things. So it definitely prepared the heart of the Greek world. Yes. I think that's, it's a critical importance. The other thing, too, in noting about this, how the early fathers spoke about things like the philosophers, and then they could certainly, they could certainly, when they were in a feisty mood, uh, you know, label them as pagans, and, you know, and you get that stuff. But uh, by and large, they have a very um, generous uh, sort of treatment of them. Uh, and it also, it goes to say that um, this is a generous attitude towards the world uh, outside of the confines of Judaism, uh, you know, outside the confines of the strict covenant community with God, and a recognition, much as we'll see in the New Testament, uh, where you, you're preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and recognizing that God's already been at work in, among the Gentiles. And so it's a very, it's a very generous attitude. Uh, and so, like when St. Paul goes to uh, Athens and preaches there, he was singularly unsuccessful at Athens, uh, but he goes, he goes to the place where the philosophers gathered and argued, a, a place called Mars Hill, the Areopagus, uh, and argues, and he starts talking about uh, the resurrection of Christ, but he began his sermon, as recorded in the book of Acts, by citing a an altar, a pagan altar he had seen on the way into the city that was inscribed to the unknown God. And he takes that as his point. So, you know, and he uses, um, you know, he uses, he quotes one of their own poets. Uh, he, you know, Paul knew their culture. He used points of contact with their culture. Uh, and if you will, in Athens, sought to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ with as much Athenian content as he could. Uh, he got laughed out because he brought some Jewish content and uh, talking about the resurrection and they thought that was a crazy idea. But um, it's an example of 
saying, gee, Paul, how would you preach to these Gentiles? Uh, we know that a lot of preaching, early preaching to the Gentiles were, was preaching to Gentiles who had already embraced uh, Judaism to a certain extent. Uh, they were called the God-fearers uh, and uh, had not actually become Jews, but were very open to that. They were like the easy Gentiles to preach to. Like but going to the hard Gentiles uh, required uh, that we be able to cite philosophy and speak of those things. One of the greatest early Christian uh, writers, uh, what, second century or so, uh, St. Justin Martyr, had been a philosopher before he becomes a Christian and one of the earliest theologians. Uh, and so uh, all of them, the great fathers of, say, the fourth century, such as St. Basil the Great, uh, Gregory the Theologian, uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, all of them had been schooled in philosophy in Alexandria, which was the center of the, the greatest center of learning at their time, uh, first in Alexandria and then uh, in Athens following that. They knew their Plato, they knew their Aristotle, they knew uh, all of those things, as well as knowing the Christian stuff. Um, they were among the most, and, and I might have add, add, in those days, if you were studying philosophy, that also meant you studied math, you studied science, you basically studied everything. Um, and they would have been among the most educated men of their time. Uh, they were not uh, anti-scholastic. Um, and, you know, they wanted to learn everything and had a respect for it uh, and used whatever was a, a, a would serve their needs. So, yeah, and I mean, we look at just a martyr, for example, to begin with, he's alluding to Plato, he's alluding to the Stoics. And for a lot of our listeners, that may sound like problematic. Why would you do that? And it's more like this. And, and St. Justin says it very beautifully. I don't have the quote, but he, in a second apology, he says that all things that are true belong to us because it's the Logos, the truth himself, who has created all these things. So when, when philosophers look at the world and come to a right conclusion, right understanding about the world, they have understood something about the mind of the Logos, how he created things. So for example, like human nature, the, the tripartite division that I mentioned earlier, it's Plato that really first pointed that out. The church fathers took that, but they also developed it further because for Plato, there was no sin. Sin was not a reality. It wasn't even attended to, but for Christians, it was. So they took that same framework and showed that it's when the appetites, the passions overpower the mind. So those impulses cause us to follow them. That's what we call an impulsive person, someone who does things without thinking. That is sin because it's letting the lower part of you take control of the higher part of you, the reason, the rational soul, which in the church fathers is the image of God. This is where the image of God resides in us. So they took it and developed it further. It's almost as if they are a new philosophical system as well, and not just a moral system, but an all-encompassing one, looking at how everything fits together in the light of Christ. Well, you know, we live in, in a world that is uh, so, uh, I guess, multicultural, as they call it, although it's not really true. We're not very multicultural. It's just there's so much stuff in our culture. Um, you rarely actually meet somebody 
in America who really belong to something outside of Western civilization. Uh, when you do, it can be very interesting and very enlightening. Uh, I've, some of the best conversations I've ever had are with Buddhists, um, especially the real deal. I don't mean like American Buddhists, but real Buddhists. There's some interesting conversations to be had. Uh, you can learn from them. Um, that doesn't make me a Buddhist. That just makes me somebody who's interested in hearing what they have to say. But the, the, the largeness, this is how I think of it, particularly as an Orthodox Christian, um, is that, um, I mean, there's a problem in, in modern Christianity with denominationalism, uh, this tendency to kind of be specialist so that you specialize in one little, you know, group, whatever like that. Whereas, and I, you know, I, I like to remind people with Orthodox Christianity, we were essentially the only kind of Christianity for about a thousand years. You know, even, even though there was like a schism with the, the, uh, the Coptic Christians, uh, you know, the Oriental Orthodox as they're called in, in Egypt or whatever, they were still like us. We had an argument over a couple of things, but they were still like us and uh, more like each other than not. And that, that the right attitude towards that was a very large encompassing. In fact, we used the word Catholic, which means according to the whole or universal. And, and so it should be uh, our attitude towards the world, uh, not being of the world, but understanding, as Paul says in uh, Ephesians, first chapter that God has purposed to gather together in one all things in Christ Jesus. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's possible sometimes, especially in a very competitive world like we have, uh, to be afraid uh, that, oh my goodness, I might slip and, and believe something wrong, or I might slip and, you know, state my doctrine wrong. And, well, you know, uh, yes, those can be genuine concerns, but mostly you, 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 I tend to want to tell people, first off, you want to guard your heart. Uh, and by guarding your heart, as in you're going to do more damage to yourself by being afraid, uh, quite likely, uh, because that'll damage your heart and, and, and make you a person who's become so narrow that God can't do much with you um, and that you can't have conversations beyond where you are. Um, you know, this will come up like, say, for Orthodox, uh, usually when it's thanks, the Thanksgiving holiday in America that happens to fall during a season in which we're fasting and not eating meat uh, in preparation for Christmas, you know, the nativity fast. And I always told people, it's not for heaven's sakes, you're at your mom's and they're not Orthodox. Eat a turkey and get over it. Don't worry that you're like somehow another. It's not a if fasting for the Orthodox. It's not about kosher. It's just eat the turkey, you know, and, and, uh, and eat nothing the next day if you feel guilty good heavens, but, you know, just don't be so afraid, don't be so frightened, don't be so narrow. Uh, we have a good God who loves mankind, he's not trying to make it hard. This comes back to your question, though, about my father is a good man, why does he need Jesus? And um, can, I tell a, can I tell a quick story on this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I had a friend that I made when I was in seminary, and I won't give you the whole thing on that, but my wife really was the one who did this, made a friend with a guy and his girlfriend uh, who were communists. We were in seminary in Chicago, uh, and being a good Southern boy, I wasn't used to meeting communists. I mean, I thought I wasn't surprised that they had some up north 
because we thought a lot of other things about people up north. But uh, we met this guy. They were, they were real life communists, members of the Socialist Workers Party. And atheist, he was a uh, ex-Roman Catholic. She, his girlfriend was an ex-Episcopalian. My wife met them and invited them over to our house, uh, our apartment at the seminary for tea. She forgot to tell them that I was a seminarian and they came over quite a bit chagrined that they were sitting in this Christian seminary apartment having tea with some guy who's preparing for the priesthood. But out of that, we actually became good friends. We, 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 the whole three years I was in seminary, we were close with them. We even got them to go to church with us a couple times. Uh, but we argued a lot for three years about God, uh, very politely and like friends will do. And one night uh, in my third year, we're coming down sort of towards the end of things. Jerry, the guy's name was Jerry. Jerry said to me, he said, you know, he said, the God I don't believe in now is a lot different than the God I used to not believe in. And that's a very interesting statement. I said, Jerry, how is that? He said, well, he said, the way I grew up, I was afraid of Jesus. I was afraid that if I did anything wrong, terrible things would happen to me. And he described that. Some of it had to do with, you know, being schooled under a bunch of mean nuns and, uh, and stuff and frightened. But anyway, uh, so he was frightened of him. He said, but the Jesus you've been telling me about is love, is joy, is peace is light. And I'm thinking, okay, he's been listening to me. And he said, I still have a problem of believing that he actually exists. You know, he said, but if I were to die tonight and came face to face with the Jesus you've been telling me about, I wouldn't want to run any other direction. And I said to him, Jerry, I believe that if you died tonight, you came face to face with the Jesus whom I know, he wouldn't run in the other direction either. Now, uh, I took what Jerry said to me that night to my prayers, and I prayed it and have prayed it. He's now, uh, may he rest in peace. He's now died uh, as we are older men, uh, and I believe stands face to face with G the Jesus whom I told him about. And my prayer, uh, before God was, Jesus, he doesn't know you, or he doesn't know he knows you, you know, as in he's got some existential issues tied up with his childhood and with all kinds of issues going on like that. Would you please overlook all of that nonsense and accept, and I'm like, I'm talking, I, I, and accept what he gave me tonight as his profession of faith, which was, if the Jesus you've told me about is who he is, then I would love him. And I think, you know, sometimes in a strange modern world, that might be the most confession that someone could make. Uh, I also think that any man who is in fact good, uh, truly good, uh, first off, uh, all goodness comes of God, for God alone is good, we say as Christians. And so anyone who does good, uh, uh, as St. John said, anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He may not yet know he knows God, uh, but I think there are uh, people whose uh, very actions show uh, uh, something of the presence of God in them. Um, 
there's a lot of people out there who are do not who, who would not profess belief in God or profess belief in Christ precisely because of what we as Christians have done. Because we have defamed the name and we have brought Christ into ill repute. And that is on us, not on them. Uh, and yet they love the good uh, and, and sometimes do it uh, sacrificially. Jerry, as I said, was a card-carrying socialist. And I, I knew of times in his life he had turned down promotion to much higher, better paying jobs because he wanted to be a worker. And I thought, gee, that's a lot more sacrifice than any Christian I know. <laughs> he said, take the job. And we even argue, you know? argue about, um, like, should, I don't want fast today. And, you know, we, we're not willing yeah. to sacrifice a meal. And he's sacrificing. He's turning down tens of thousands of dollars for the sake of workers. Well, I'm thinking, well, somebody needs to do something like that. And so, I, you know, um, I think generally my own life and thought on these things is that God alone judges. God alone knows the heart. Um, and the scriptures tell us that he's not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not trying to make this hard. And Jesus didn't, didn't become man and die for us so that he then could make it hard for us to be reconciled to him. That it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that he became sin, uh, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, um, you know, uh, I do find that there are Christians who seem to be so nervous that somebody might get into heaven, uh, <laughs> you know, the wrong way or somehow that, that, that it just that they're just so afraid of that and I just think you know I I um I like to have a worker's mentality about this and that is um I, I scold people uh, particularly in our culture that everybody in America thinks they're in management uh you know we 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 do we all think we we all know economics we all know uh, uh ep epidemiology uh, we all know uh, political science. We know everything. Everybody in America is an expert. And, and you know, God knows. We know we're all theologians. Yeah. And we know each other's fields better than the person who works oh, there. Absolutely. Just, just read Facebook and you'll see. And, uh, you know, post about something you actually know. And, you know, everybody will correct you. But nonetheless, um, with a sort of a management attitude, um, we don't think like workers. Mm. You know, if you think like workers, you want everybody to get a raise. You don't mind everybody getting a raise. If you're in management, you want to be sure that the guy who gets a raise actually deserves it. And, he, and you get this sort of a thing that way. And I think uh, Jesus seems to have done very well in his ministry preaching to uh, the workers. That is, uh, sex workers, uh, <laughs> drunks, uh, the outcasts. Uh, the Pharisees were all in management. Um, they, they knew how to run Judaism. And uh, they had Judaism run so well that they had no room for the Messiah. And it goes back to, to transformation. I mean, this part, I mean, maybe are people listening are upset. Well, what's the answer to the question? <laughs> yeah. But, but before we go to that, it's, it's Christianity is about transformation. It's, it's not... Jesus was here to make good boys and girls. If he was, well, Plato and Aristotle show people how to do that. 
at least theoretically. Yeah. And, and it comes to the point like where you say like Jesus, the people that followed him were the awful people as CS Lewis calls them, you know, at the, at the very end of mere Christianity as those two chapters, nice people or new men and ends with the chapter new men. It says people want to see Christians as nice people. Like if these Christians are right, they should be the nicest people in the world. But that's actually the Pharisaic critique. You know, they looked at the people around Jesus. Oh, these are, you got the tax collectors. You got the prostitutes. You've got the gluttons. You've got all these people hanging out with you because those are the people that can be transformed. And, you know, like C.S. Lewis says, you know, the, the, the worse they are, the easier the transformation can be. <laughs> I have spent some time in the recovery community. I've volunteered and done work in drug and alcohol treatment centers here in East Tennessee. And I mean, we've got the drug epidemic like everybody has. And, uh, I will tell you, there's never been anywhere easier to speak about the gospel than, uh, and the good news of the gospel. Like take the story of the woman caught in adultery and was it uh, John chapter eight or so, um, you know, and Jesus won't condemn her. Everybody else is ready to throw stones and Jesus protects her. Uh, she doesn't get a big lecture out of it. He does say, go and sin no more. But he doesn't even say to her, you promise not to sin anymore. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, go and sin no more. And he won't condemn her. I mean, um, Anyway, I mean, I, the number of times I've shared and, and explored that story with a room full of people, and there's not a dry eye there. They, they hear him speaking to them. There's a, one of my favorite uh, uh, scenes in a Dostoevsky novel is in Crime and Punishment, uh, where the drunkard Marmaladov, uh, the father, his daughter uh, has become a prostitute, uh, basically to keep the family uh, alive and he takes her money and he spends it on drink. He's a terrible, terrible father and a terrible drunkard. Uh, and Raskolnikov, this chief character, is, is with him in a pub. And uh, Marmaladov uh, has this, kind of does this uh, end of the world soliloquy. And he talks about that at the end of all things, Jesus will stand up and say, I mean, at Judgment Day, he will say, Come, you drunkards, come, you whores, come, you, and he names all of these horrible people and, you know, and welcomes them into the kingdom of God. Uh, and, um, you know, it's just really a scandalous thing. And, and he says to Raskolnikov, and do you know why? He said, because not one of them thought he was worthy. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny that when it really comes to the acquisition of the virtues, um, I mean, the mechanism by which we acquire virtue is oftentimes not the kind of mechanism people think about. Like, if I work really hard at this virtue, I get it. The, the, the soul is more complex than that. Um, and so um, it's like the fathers will spend a great deal of time talking about humility. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really hard to think humility, ooh, I'm going to be humble, um, you know, but there's actually a way to acquire humility. Uh, one of the great uh, 20th century Christian uh, saints, uh, Father Sophroni, talked about it, and he said, you have to learn how to bear a little shame. 
uh, this terrible thing that we all hate that is when someone nails me, I mean, really catches me out and I see it and I'm embarrassed and, and you want to cover it. You want to, you know, to justify yourself or whatever that way. Instead, if we're willing to bear a little shame, uh, then uh, I, there was a wonderful statement by the Catholic Saint, uh, Saint Therese of Lisieux, who's sometimes known as a little flower. She said, if you can bear serenely the trial of being displeasing to yourself, then you will be for Jesus a place of refuge. Uh, and I mean, and that really has a lot to do with the acquisition of virtue, that uh, I'm willing to be displeasing to myself. That is to put up with the fact that I'm not so good, uh, that I'm not nearly as good as I'd like to be. Uh, I'm not so smart, I'm not so whatever, um, and, but I'm willing to bear it. Uh, then goodness can begin to reside in me. I mean, for instance, if you want, if you, if you need, if you need a hundred bucks, okay, let's say you need a hundred bucks. Who do I go to to get a hundred bucks from? Most often you need to go to somebody else who needs a hundred bucks. You'll get it from people who are just like you. If you get it from some guy who can just let a hundred bucks go without even thinking about it, he'll want to manage you. He'll want to be sure you deserve it. C.S. Lewis, whom you mentioned, was walking down the street one day with a friend and a bum comes up to him and asks him for a pound. And he pulls out a note and gives it to the guy and he walks off. And the other fellow said to Lewis, he said, he's just gonna spend that on a pint. And Lewis said to him, he said, well, that's what I was gonna do with it. <laughs> Will you stand a guy a pint? Yes, yes, here, go have one. Um, you know, I, in my experience over the years, I have seen unbelievable generosity on the part of the poorest of the poor. I have seen people give half of everything they own, which is almost nothing, to somebody else who's got nothing. And I've seen people who have vast fortunes who will agonize over whether or not they should even give a bum a dollar on the street. And, you know, uh, you want help, go to somebody who can't afford it. The poor are always more generous, which says something to me about the nature of virtue. Um, and Jesus sort of shows the upside downness of the world. Jesus actually reveals the virtue of the outcast and the poor, the drunkard and the prostitute, uh, when those who thought themselves virtuous were in fact, as he said, you're like whitewashed sepulchers. Outside you're all clean and white, but inside you're filled with dead men's bones. And so uh, God judges according to the heart and he sees virtue where a lot of us think, uh, think it isn't found. Um, you know, I'd love as a southerner or anyone should, I'd love the writings of uh, uh, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she turns these stories upside down too and, and reveals these things um, on and on. Um, yeah, and I, I wanted to share something because as you were speaking, you know, Saint from the Syrian in his letter to Publius, he talks about the gospel being a mirror. So it's like Christ comes to show people who they are, not who they think they are. And toward the very end of that letter, or actually in the middle, he starts speaking and it's almost as if you can see the mirror yourself. And that's just for everyone who doesn't know Saint Ephraim, that's what he does. 
So he says something like, um, um, this is in section 11, at times, even when we were in error mired in the pride of our mind, as if with our feet in the mud, did not perceive our error because our soul was unable to see itself. Although we would look into the mirror each day, we would grope around in the dark like blind men, because our inner mind did not possess that which is necessary for discernment. Then, as if from a deep sleep, the mercy of the Most High poured out like rain, was sprinkled on our drowsiness and from our sleep, and we were roused boldly and took up this mirror to see ourself in it. At that very moment, we were convicted by our faults, and we discovered that we were barren of any good virtue, and that we have become a dwelling place for every corrupting thought, and a lodge and an abode for every lust. Then he starts talking about how he saw the virtuous, and with their crowns and their garments, and then he realizes he doesn't have any of this. And it's, I feel like that's what our Lord does. He comes as a mirror. And if we're good, we recognize it in him. And if we're not lining up to his standard, his example, because he's the exemplar, he's the one we should form ourselves by, then we realize it too. Now, of course, there's two reactions you could do. You could either keep holding the mirror and start trying to work on it yourself, <laughs> Or you could put the mirror down and say, I don't like that. I think, well, I, I, would be I have a caution when I think about that. And that is, uh, we're, a highly, we're a highly moralistic culture. As in, I mean, and it'd be possible to kind of look at Jesus and abstract sort of Jesus stuff. You know, like he's this, 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 and this. And you turn Jesus into a set of rules. And... Uh, a lot of people, I meet lots of people who kind of have uh, a moralistic kind of uh, neurosis. Uh, uh, they're never clean enough. They're never good enough. They're, they're probably riddled with shame uh, and crippled by it. Um, and uh, oftentimes they've either gotten that way through, uh, there actually are, you know, brain conditions that produce a kind of moralism like that. But there's also lots of injuries that happen in life that cause that sort of thing too. Uh, and it, it does produce a kind of fastidiousness, uh, a scrupulosity. And, um, you know, the, um, I tend to like, and there's a, there's a work by uh, uh, Dr. Timothy Petitsis, who is the acting dean at Holy Cross uh, in Boston, a wonderful uh, professor of ethics, uh, called The Ethics of Beauty. Uh, it's a new book of his. I really like a great deal, and I think it's really rightly grounded in the tradition. And the, I think the right the way that we do it in being drawn to Christ as the mirror is uh, to be drawn to the beauty of Christ, uh, to be drawn to the excellence of Christ, and in a way, forget yourself. Don't think so much about yourself. Don't think about whether or not you're getting it right or not. Allow yourself to be drawn by the beauty uh, and, uh, you know, this is, this is actually kind of rooted in, in, uh, in Plato and Aristotle. That is the eros, the desire that is God-given in the soul towards uh, the one, towards the true, towards the beauty, towards the good, uh, and allow that to draw us uh, versus a kind of, um, you know, because when we talk about this, Protestants listening to this kind of talk can suddenly be concerned that we're talking about what they would call a works righteousness. 
that I'm, I'm trying to be good and based on that good that I'm being, and I would say, no, 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 because we really are talking about an ontology. That is, it's a matter of our being. Our transformation is from the inside out. It's an actual transformation of who I am uh, that's forming and shaping me. St. Paul, uh, when he talks about our transformation, uh, will describe it, was it in 2 Corinthians, as beholding, uh, as in a mirror, uh, it, the face of Christ and being changed from glory to glory. What's really interesting is that he uses he uses vision as the tool. He doesn't uh -huh. describe it as being, you know, that looking at Jesus, we're motivated to try harder and harder. Well, no, that, that's moralism, and that's not it. Is that beholding the glory of God, what happens with the glory? I love it. I fall in love with it, and I lose myself in him. I... Um, you know, I, it's an interesting thing. I think one of the great gifts given to us in this life, for many of us, is uh, the gift of marriage. Um, and uh, I, I like to tell young men and women when, they're, when I'm doing preparation for their marriage that the, that the image of marriage is that the beloved only knows himself as he sees himself uh, in the beloved. That, you know, that the husband knows himself as he sees himself in the wife, and the wife knows herself as she sees himself in her husband, that this is a gift to us for our salvation, um, that my marriage uh, has more, has had more profound, I've been married 43 years, it's had more impact on my life than anything else I've done. Uh, uh, my wife is, has helped me to become a better man, you know, and promised to kill me if I don't. No, sorry, <laughs> that's, that's a joke. <laughs> I mean, there's something about loving someone. It's love that transforms us. And God gives us this, this face of love, uh, this person of love that we lose ourselves in and we begin to find ourselves transformed in that. Um, for that matter, and St. John would talk this way too about how we love the brethren. Um, and uh, I mean, I, part of my privilege as a priest is serving these people whom I've loved all these years and have loved me in return. Um, and uh, learning to live that way um, it's in it's in loving it's in losing myself in the beloved in that sense uh, the mirror uh, seeing Christ in the mirror of my brother's soul my sister's soul uh, that I come to know myself uh, and um, and the virtues come naturally they're not unnatural to us you know, I think one of the things that we do have in common with Plato, even though, uh, you know, Plato doesn't talk about sin, uh, in orthodoxy, we do not describe ourselves as having a sinful nature. That's a later Western notion. We don't, we don't speak like that. Um, we see sin, and you can see this particularly, say, in, in St. Athanasius and his uh, in the incarnation of the word. Mm. Uh, sin is external to us. It's, it's not who we're supposed to be. It doesn't belong to us. It's becoming, in sin, we become what we're not supposed to be. And, uh, and so in repentance in Christ, we're being restored to who we're created to be. And in that sense, it's a very, um, I would say as an Orthodox Christian, when I'm talking to a non-believer, I already believe that he naturally agrees with me. He may not know it yet. But in that sense, he doesn't know his own nature yet. Uh, but that I don't assume he's my enemy. Uh, I don't 
assume he has to be convinced of the truth of these things. He knows the truth of these things. But it's funny, the word education, this is very Plato, mm. uh, but education means to lead out, educare, or edu educri uh, in Latin, to, to educate is to lead out. The notion being that you already know the truth. And you, as an educator, you lead, you're leading children to know what they already know. Um, you're not trying to teach them something foreign to them. That's a very, that's a very friendly way to teach. Um, and, uh, you know, as compared to trying to beat the truth into somebody or, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing is thinking they already know this. It's a fascinating, I mean, I like to use the, the notion of grammar as an image of doctrine, that doctrine, the Christian doctrine is just the grammar of the Christian language, teaches us how to speak. These are the grammatical rules of how we speak about God. Um, that, um, I mean, for instance, when you're, you don't study grammar in school until you're about fourth grade. I don't even know if they teach grammar anymore, but when I was a child, we learned grammar starting in the fourth grade, subject and verb and object and things like that. Well, they told us all of this stuff and they called it English, but we were all fluent in English. Mm -hmm. And even a child of, who's fluent at age five speaking English and a foreigner comes who when speaking their English breaks certain grammatical rules, the child will recognize that they've made a mistake. They won't know and won't be able to name what the mistake is, but they will know what the mistake is. I mean, they, they will know that a mistake has been made and that the person is somehow from somewhere else and speaks English with difficulty. Um, well, that's how it is. I mean, it's like uh, in the fourth century, there's an orthodox perspective. We would never say there's such a thing as the development of doctrine, that we have spoken fluent Christianity since the very beginning. But say in the fourth century, when the priest Arius in Alexandria begins to talk about Christ uh, as somehow not God, like the Father is God, uh, the church said, that's not how we say that. This is not how we speak. And what did the church do? Well, the church didn't make up rules. The church already knew the rule, or if they hadn't known the rule, they wouldn't have known that what he said was wrong. They knew what he said was wrong. Then they had to state the rule, but the rule was something like finding out how do we state what we already know? And this was, you know, what Athanasius was doing when he comes up with the an incredible philosophical term of homoousios, which is like, oh my gosh, the, even the Christians thought, do we, do we have to have such a terrible term? Until he began to explain it, and they like, well, yeah, that's a grammatical rule that would fit if you explain it like that. So we'll use homoousios and we'll put it in our creed, although we hate having such a philosophical term, but it worked. It took a century for us to figure out that grammatically that was okay. They had to play around with it, roll it around in their mouth, spit it out a few times, think, well, let's try homoousios, does that work? No, 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 that's got some other, you know, but that's Christian doctrine. We're not finding, you know, making up what we believe. We've always known what we believe. We've yeah, always known. That terminology was just uh, ref reflecting upon what they had already taught, yes. that already knew, and just yeah. trying to express it in a way where everyone was arguing about, well, what exactly is the Trinity? St. John says in his, one of, in his little epistle, he says, you have no need that any man teach you. The anointing, the charisma, 
the anointing that abides, abides in you teaches you all things, which is to say that as Christians, when we say that Jesus is Lord, uh, there is in our heart a yes and an amen. That is, uh, the God in us speaks and said, yes, that is true. And, you know, and this is, this is true. We recite the creed. Our heart says, yes, this is true. Uh, and, you know, so if you will, uh, Christianity's attitude towards all of this, in, including even the gospel to non-believers, is education. I'm teaching them to uh, leading out of them that which they knew and they didn't know they knew. Yeah. Um, and and so, I, I mean, I think that's a very friendly way to do it. And it's a, um, it's a useful kind of apologetics uh, understanding uh, versus trying to turn somebody into something that they're not. Um, yeah, and that's, like that's that. what we got to come up with in, in orthodoxy. It's or what we came up with as a church. It's, it was all a reflection upon the revelation of Christ, both who he is and what he said. And it's, it's not a moral system. It's like you said, it's an ontological system. Ontology for you listening means being, existence. Yeah. It's the way to look at everything and how it fits together. Um, if I may say it another way, it's vision. You know, yeah. when we look at anything, we're actually not looking at the thing itself, but we're also taking the concepts that we have and interpreting what we see. Sure. So for example, we see a, um, a child, for example, super angry, breaking everything apart. And we come from homes that are very stable. We interpret that as a kid who's spoiled and throwing a tantrum. But then we hear that this child, for example, has autism. We realize that's not a tantrum then. This is, this person is suffering. There must be filtration issues. They're, they're not able to process what's around them and it's led to frustration. And instead of looking at a child and making a judgment saying, oh, this, this person's spoiled. How did his mom let him get away with that? Now we have pity. So any type of experience, it's experience plus what we have in our minds as a concept, and that leads to vision. So Christianity brings this new vision with Christ how we look at God, how we look at each other. And morality is only secondary to that. It's, morality is not the primary system. It's like even with the example of St. Ephraim, like you pointed out and like he did later, it's not about working. It's about seeing the difference. Yeah. And either to be drawn to the beauty of Christ as we're drawn to beauty of other things, like a sunset, for example. People think beauty, this is something we hold in the West, that beauty is just in the eye of the beholder. But that's not true. Anyone who sees a beautiful sunset and they're walking, they're going to stop. And they may stop what they're doing, take out their phones, take the picture, take a selfie with it, which is probably, you know, reducing yeah, the beauty yeah. of the scene. <laughs> but um, they're drawn to beauty. And for no other reason than just to be in and with the thing itself. So that's okay. what that, that mirror well, is. We're hardwired for beauty. Yeah. You know? We shouldn't have to apologize for that. There's a lot of things we're hardwired for, and it's, and it's good. And if we weren't, it wouldn't happen. We're created for this stuff. You know, there's a, the, uh, um, in thinking of morality, again, um, the, the tendency, I mean, for instance, you could be a very good man and filled with virtue in, in all the proper and right sense and, and be the very friend of God. Um, and that is a good thing. You could also be a terrible sinner um, without any virtues at all. 
and yet recognize the truth of that in the presence of God and in a single moment find yourself united with him. We have that example in the scriptures of, uh, of the one we call the good thief, who on the day that he's crucified next to Jesus simply says, I mean, the guy's done something really bad. He's probably, we call him a thief. He's probably a murderer. I, I suspect that they didn't just crucify thieves. I suspect there was a little killing one in there as well. And so he's being crucified next to Jesus. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come today, when you come into your kingdom. Well, that's not a lot of, I mean, he did say, you know, I deserve what I'm getting. He says to the other thief, we deserve what we're getting. You know, and then Jesus remembered me. Well, there's no time to like work out the virtues. Uh, there's no time to do any of that, but there was time in that moment to have the vision, uh, to see the truth of himself in the light of Christ. Uh, and that was sufficient. Um, I mean, I don't go around trying to tell people the sufficiency and say, well, you know, just all you got to do is on your deathbed, just say, you know, remember me in your kingdom or something. I mean, nah, it's just, that's none of it. It's also and, dumb. Yeah, and it comes at the time of life. I mean, this thief, the whole life right. was disordered. <laughs> it was yeah, full. I mean, and he, he, he's fortunate. It comes to him in that moment. There are, there are people, and I like to think about a life as a whole thing and not just it's a whole thing leading up to the last moment. We tend to do that in our culture uh, and such that we value the last moment above everything else. It's a, it's a theory I call this, as the tree falls, so it lies. You know, so it's like, what state was a guy's soul in when he died? And I'm thinking, well, you know, I have, I have four children. I've known them since they were born. The oldest is 40, the youngest will be 30 next year. Um, and I know the whole of their life to a degree. And, you know, what point in their life would I single out and say, you know, this is my son, James. This is my daughter, Mary. I mean, at what point? All of those points are them. Um, would I pick out the worst point in all of their life and say, oh, God, would you judge them for that? And no, of course I wouldn't. I would pick out the best point in their life and say, oh, God, remember them. Remember this kindness. They did. I mean, it was something. Um, and uh, there's that wonderful story in Dostoevsky. It's got to be my favorite author, but uh, he tells the story of the old woman and the onion. Uh, there's a wicked old woman who goes to hell, and her guardian angel is all upset because he's blown it. She's gone to hell. He's lost. And so he goes searching back through all of her life and everything she's ever done to see if there's any decent thing she's ever done. And he finds a single rotten onion that she gave away to a beggar woman who asked for something to eat one day. And he goes, ah, ah, there's a good deed. And he gets the rotten onion and takes it to her in the fires of hell and stretches it out to her and tells her to grab hold. And she grabs hold of this rotten onion. And by that rotten onion, he's pulling her out of the fires of hell until others in hell look around and see her getting out. And they keep trying to grab on too. And she turns to them and goes, no, no, it's mine. And with that, falls back into hell. Well, you know, <laughs> moral of the story, <laughs> you can draw the moral of the story, but I like to look at the story and think, yeah, but just think, one little rotten onion, one little rotten onion. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a crazy story. It's a crazy little parable. And, you know, you can't say, oh, that's, well, that's not in scripture. No, it's not. But it's a crazy story that someone told. And I like it. Um, 
And I think the story illustrates something about the exaggerated love of God. St. Isaac of Syria called it God's crazy love, um, that he would do such a thing. But any God who's willing to become man uh, for us and for our salvation uh, loves us with a crazy love. And as I say, he's not trying to make this hard. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I want to acquire the virtues is because the passions are horrible. They eat me up. They, they, they not only alienate me from God, they alienate me from the people around me, and they alienate me from myself. I don't want to live bound by anger and greed and envy and all of these things. That is hell. It's a living hell already. You know, and so the, the good news is, is I know a way out of the hell you already know. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's, you know, a lot of people hear this, you know, what good deeds I have to do. And, and, and the reality is it's, you know, if it's not conscious, it becomes this yeah. focus. If you're focused on Christ and his beauty, and we let that transform us by imitation, and the fathers, especially Athanasius in, on, against the heathen and on the incarnation, uses that word and a lot of the other fathers imitations the most sincere form of changing yourself because it's changed out of love it's changed out of being around someone and it's not someone who sits and thinks i'm going to count my virtues and i'm going to get to heaven this way and yeah. and and what's interesting about that is you know socrates this was a problem with socrates and plato they thought if someone had knowledge then they will be virtuous because if they know something's good, then they're going to do the good and something's bad, they'll avoid the bad. But for all you listening as well as myself, we know that's never true. You know, a lot of times people know they're going to like, why should I do that? What's, the, what's that going to have for me? I know it's good. I'm not doing it. And, and Dostoevsky, I think, is like the, the greatest answer to that question because he shows that knowing is not enough. And yeah. The church fathers pointed that out. Knowing is not enough. There is something else, something more we need. And that becomes the model of Christ, the example, his entire life. We look at it, and when we look at it with love, we're transformed into it without thinking about it. And it becomes a forward-moving spiritual life, not one where, oh, I, I lack this virtue, and I, I feel guilty about it. I try to do it again, and I just keep ending up in the mess of despair. And I go even further down that dark road that I'm trying to avoid because knowing and doing consciously is not enough. We need the example. Well, I, I think it's important to say, too, though, that, that, that the example is not external to us. I mean, though you can see it externally. Uh, the example is also internal. It's, that is, Christ dwells in us. He comes in us, and um, and that you know. I mean, for instance, the most common thing we talk about uh, is in in an Orthodox prayer life is uh, the constant remembrance of God. As we practice that in the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, and a sinner, and and you know, and and living in union with Christ, so that the example is in me. St. Paul says, Christ within us, the hope of glory, so that it's not external like, say, uh, uh, Thomas Akempis, uh, the imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ, in which you sort of paint out the image, and now I try to act like that. That's still external, yeah. and, you know, and simply is one more way of talking about 
uh, a kind of moralism. Instead, this is a, uh, a union with God so that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And, I, and in living in union with him, Christ in me makes possible in me what I could not do alone. He, he becomes virtue in me, Christ my virtue, uh, Christ my humility, uh, Christ my courage, Christ my generosity, Christ all of these things uh, for me, and so that I am in him and he is in me, and, and, and that's what we struggle to do. Um, and that, in a way, is, it's a kind of, if Christians have a morality, then we would rightly, perhaps, I, I would call it a mystical morality, um, that I participate in the mystery of the virtues, uh, which have a reality in Christ, and his virtue becomes my virtue. It's Christ in me. And um, that is, um, you know, because sometimes, sometimes people trying to behave good uh, can also get in the way of acquiring the virtues because they kind of like, they've got their own agenda, you know. And uh, I've seen people, in, for instance, I've, been a, I've, I've heard confessions for 40 years, so you kind of really get inside this stuff and uh, directing souls. Uh, I've seen people who are really hung up about a particular, say, a besetting sin in their life. And it's like the, the thing they talk about every time they come to, to, to confession. It's like, how did I do with that? Did I do good? Did I make progress? Did I fight it better? Did I whatever, blah, 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 like that? And there's sometimes you just want to kind of smack them and say, stop thinking about that. Stop thinking about that. This is doing you no good at all. You're, you are preoccupied with this. And you have made it so important that you cannot see the rest of your life. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and that's the kind of thing that can happen with when, when I'm trying to figure out what being good is. Um, God is good. And what I need to do is to live in union with God. Um, and, you know, sometimes I can see the obvious kinds of lack of virtues in me. And, you know, and it can be very, you know, uh, can see that it's something that I need to repent of. I need to go and say, Jesus, I can really see, you know, but oftentimes even with that, this is more the ontological question is, it, and this would be the question of a mature confessor, isn't just how did you do that what you did, but why did you do what you did? You know, what is it in you that is broken uh, that acts this way? Uh, what is it that might need to be healed? Um, that is like going to a doctor. When I go to a doctor and I tell him my symptoms, um, if the doctor only treats my symptoms and doesn't diagnose the disease, then I'll only, I'll never get better. Um, I think it's best to say that Christianity views sin as a disease rather than a moral problem. I, I've stated it in, in my book, uh, as far as I can tell, I'm the one who said it. Uh, if somebody else said it first, good for them. Uh, but that um, Jesus did not die in order to make bad men good. Jesus died to make dead men live. And uh, in the New Testament, sin is synonymous with death. We die, in, sin is farah, it's corruption. It's this disease eating at us like a moral cancer. Uh, it's eating at my soul. And the symptoms, these bad things I do, are just the symptoms 
of this moral corruption eating away at me that needs to be healed. Uh, and repentance uh, and, and all that we live in union with God in seeking to do that is the medicine that heals this death wound in me. And uh, for instance, St. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch refers to communion as the medicine of immortality. Uh, it's eating and drinking the very life of God. Jesus says, you know, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Uh, you know, and so this, this life is, that we eat is also the forgiveness of our sins because it is union with God who is the giver of life. Um, and so, you know, it is, I think as Christians, we never speak or don't rightly speak with morality first, uh, partly because you could describe a moral system that had no reference to God. You could not speak a Christian moral system that wasn't completely about God and, and not simply an external, like God gave me rules, uh, but God gave me God. It is God in me is, is the rule of morality. Is It's God in me. And that's what I lack is that we broke communion with God and we die. And it is death in me that comes out with these horrible symptoms. I need life in me that comes from God. So the woman who wonders about her father, you know, he was good. I'm thinking, well, perhaps there was something of Christ in that. And if he is good, and he comes face to face with a Christ he didn't know, um, he won't run and want to run in the other direction, and neither will Christ. Uh, and as Orthodox Christians, you know, and this is different from us and a number of other Christians, many Protestants, we pray for the departed. Yeah. Uh, we pray for the departed. We pray, in fact, on the Sunday of Pentecost for us this coming Sunday, there are these three prayers we pray kneeling. And one of those prayers, we pray for all human beings from Adam to the present. All of them. All of them. So what do, what do we think about those who have not heard the gospel of Christ? Well, we pray for them. What do we think about them? Well, we leave that up to God. It's not our business. We're, we're not in management. God is. That's his problem. We're we're in, the, we're in the praying part, and our part is to pray, and to pray for all, and on behalf of all, uh, and to remember them, because Christ died for all, and so we just pray for them, uh, and rejoice. If I see a good man, he's good. I'm glad. Um, I have no doubt. I have no doubt there are uh, many uh, so-called non-believers who were better, far better men than I am. I have no doubt about that. I wouldn't even have to go very far to find one, um, but um, you know, uh, that's kind of how I think about it. So, so at the end of the day, if someone yeah. comes up to you and says, "Why do we need Jesus?" What would you say? Well, uh, because Jesus is He who is, uh, as we say in, in Greek. Uh, he is the God who says, I am being. I mean, why do we need Jesus? Because you, you want to exist? He is existence. Uh, there's not another God somewhere, and you don't exist. You have no existence in and of yourself. The very fact you exist is a gift from God, who is, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's just not another God in town. There's not another source of being. He is uh, uh, all things... Uh, are sustained in their existence from him. So why do you need Jesus? Well, 
you want existence, that's where you go to get it. There is no other. Um, you may not have known that, but it, but there it is. He's your being. And so it's a little bit like if you say to me, why do I need Jesus? Is It's sort of a, it's contradictory. It's like saying, why do, why do I need myself? Uh, well, I mean, how would you answer the question, why do I need myself? I mean, I guess a, a Buddhist could say, I don't need myself. I want to become one with the Atman, the non-self. Well, okay, that's an alternative read on everything. But as Christians, we would say, God is the very ground of being. If you, you already, in him, you live and move and have your being. You want to know yourself? You will only know yourself as you see yourself in him, the very ground of being. And uh, you don't have to believe that, you know. I, there's nowhere out there going to make you believe that. You don't have to believe that. I just think that's true. I would nowhere by any means say to somebody, but if you don't believe that, he's going to roast you in hell. Well, I just think, golly gee, what, what lousy theology. Um, you know, that's, oh golly gee, uh, that's child's play as theology. It's just really, really child's play. And it's so much better than that, so much deeper than that. Um, and it's almost the dumbest answer I've ever heard given. It's common and it's dumb <laughs> uh, because it's better than that. Um, if you can't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without telling everybody that they're going to go to hell if they don't believe, then you need to stop uh, and go back and find a better way to do it. Paul didn't do that in Athens, and they were pagans. Why did he not do that? And actually, that, that way of thinking is, a, I would say, it's a health-centered view of reality. Oh, not, sure. It's not Christ-centered. It's Christ is just your ticket to avoid that. If, that, is, that is not the love of God. That's the fear of hell. Yeah. And the, the Father said there's three ways of being. You can be a slave. You can be a worker. You can be a son, a child. The slave uh, works out of fear. Uh, the worker works for a reward. And the child uh, works out of love. And uh, we want to make children of the kingdom, not slaves of the kingdom, and not just workers. Uh, we want the whole thing. So I, I want to tell other people the joy of being a child of God and, and, the, and share with them the good news that through Jesus Christ, we can receive adoption as God's children. And I don't know. I, uh, I've just never been good at scaring people. They don't believe me, and uh, I don't know. I, I was raised in a very frightening form of Christianity. Uh, they preached hell every week, and I ignored them. It didn't do me any good. Uh, I did not come in love with God until I heard someone talk about that God is love, and then I wanted to give him my life. So I'm just trying to do with others what worked for me. So... Yeah, and, and it's, it's, that's a, it at the end of the day, to love God through Christ yeah. by, the, by the indwelling of the Spirit. It's, it's if people can't see the goodness and beauty and truth in Him, yeah. then this is not Christianity. It's utilitarian, spiritual utilitarianism, just like oh yeah, we see, we see a wonderful forest. Somebody sees it, it's beautiful. Another sees it and says, oh, I could cut down all the lumber and be a millionaire using the wood. Be a contractor and build houses. Yeah. Uh, and all it's, of that sort of stuff. Those yeah. who try to avoid hell, 
by using Jesus is like those who take the beauty of a forest and cut it down for their own purposes. And at the end, they're left with nothing because at the end yeah. of the day, you deplete the forest. Yeah. So yeah. it's, that's the need. He, he fulfills us. Whereas we're these fragmented human beings and we don't see meaning in anything. He comes in to fix all that and to reinfuse all that meaning yeah. and to reinfuse and to put everything back together in us so that we become fully human. And of course, by no means have we scratched the surface of the topic, but at least it's a good framework for everyone to start thinking about it, where it's Christ is at the center of it all. Everything yeah. else flows out through him. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation. So have I. Very good. Well, thank you, Father. And uh, for those of you listening, I hope you benefited from this and you were edified and it's given you a way to start thinking about this difficult topic, especially from the early Christian and Orthodox Christian point of view on how we approach morality. And it's actually a secondary question. How do we approach Christ and how does he relate to morality? Thank you for listening. If you found this episode to be beneficial or interesting, please subscribe to my podcast and share it with your friends and family. You can also visit my website, danielhannawriter.com, where I have written articles and a list of recommended books, including much of what I mention on my podcast. I have also written on many different aspects of the Christian faith, from the Bible to spirituality to apologetics, book reviews, dialogues, patristics, and philosophy.